0: Uh, hello, welcome to uh, the Revo podcast. Um, I'm Dominic Cranis, aka Revo, and I'm joined today with Adam Gary, um, who uh, presents a radio show on Scotland um, sixty-nine uh, AM. Um, he's uh, he's on he's live at eight PM on Thursday, Friday, uh, and Monday, and at midday on Sunday. Um, and he's also uh, the cultural uh, spokesperson for UKIP, um, and a, uh, an, a an English libertarian. Um, and uh, libertarianism uh, isn't it's, it's not it's not a political ideology that really has much ground in England at the moment. Um, it's 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 a sort of word that perhaps most most people don't uh, most people don't. I wouldn't say if you ask someone on the street what a libertarian is they'd be easy, easily be able to describe it it's a bit of an americanism that's come in recently um i'm i'm not sure i, I think we're, we're further left economically than america we've got a large uh, state sector so it's kind of um it's, it's 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 a very much a new sort of import into england and uh, it hasn't gained much ground but how like what's your attraction to libertarianism? Have you like when when did you um when did you first uh, have you always like been sort of inclined towards sort of uh, free free market or is this something that you've sort of had your views changed throughout your life?
1: Well, I, I've always been a libertarian because I didn't like authority when I was a kid, and I didn't mean state authority. A, a six-year-old, seven-year-old isn't going to think about that. But I didn't like teachers, I didn't like people telling me what to do, and I, I wasn't even a rebel, I just didn't like the concept of being constrained, I wanted to be respected for the fact that I could employ logic and morality to do things which would be beneficial to me with a risk assessment that we all make, crossing the street is the most common one we make, and um, and, and beyond that, I didn't want to hurt anyone else, which is a fundamental aspect of libertarianism that a lot of people misunderstand, but um, I think when I decided to sort of come out as a libertarian, there, were, there it was really, I, I, I'd called myself a libertarian before this, but when I saw Julian Assange dragged out of the Ecuador embassy, as though he was some sort of um, Bin Ladenist, Uh, That's when I said it's really time to say that could be any one of us. And people always laugh at the slippery slope, but it wouldn't really be an effective slope unless it was slippery, which is why government always pours slime all over it. And the lockdown is really the sort of conclusion to that slippery slope that we've been on for a while. I did like the way you introduced it, though, because England invented libertarianism and the history of England from Anglo Saxon times up to the Great War with the possible exception of the Norman invasion and the temporary exceptions to liberty that were enacted during the the wars against uh, the Bonapartists of France, it's been a story of increasingly gradually expanding liberty. Even during the Civil War, the questions were about liberty, religious liberty, parliamentary liberty, the liberty of the crown. They wouldn't have phrased it that way Um, after one had their boots muddied at Moston Moor, but that really was the essence of it. So libertarianism and Englishness are inseparable. Uh, The American Bill of Rights is the cousin, the friendly cousin of the English Bill of Rights. Both documents are ignored and in many ways when you've got a written constitution, as the US has, it's easier to ignore it because all you need to do is point to it and say, oh, there it is. It's not being burnt, it's not being spat upon, it's there. Well, when you've got a constitution that isn't codified in a single corpus, as England has, People, at least before the 90s, would pay a bit more attention to the erosions of liberty. Look at the the fierce parliamentary battles in the the days before the Great War with the, the people's budget, Lloyd, George, and Asquith. These were very important battles that were all centered around liberty, the liberty of property, of the individual, the liberty of money. But I would say, in terms of the economic issues, Libertarianism, libertarianism isn't just about low tax, low regulation, fiscal responsibility, because a lot of fake conservatives and some try hard liberals try to approach that too. It's really in monetary issues, uh, the definition of money and one's right to money that makes libertarianism that much different from these other so-called economically prudent ideologies.
0: Um, I I understand... um... It's sort of strange in that um, England is really the birthplace of of liberty, and we exported it to America. Um, as you mentioned, their Bill of Rights is uh, um, be- was based on our own um, after the Glorious Revolution. Um, their whole constitution is sort of a sort of a, um, a muddled French re- reinterpretation of our own, um,
1: <laughs> yes.
0: um, and and the, but somehow somehow liberty is sort of and the culture of liberty is sort of d- 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 dwindled in England, um, while it sort of lives op- lives on in America to some extent. In parts of America, yeah. In Other parts, parts of America, I would say it's
1: even worse.
0: Yeah, exactly. But then, so it's almost, and so we've almost in with you know terms like libertarian. It's almost like we exported it to America and then we've exported it back. Um, but it, uh, it's, I, I, I think, I think. Yeah, as you're saying, it's uh, it's it's perhaps not as big a difference as as we think. You know, there are especially with lockdown. Like um, for all Americans, sort of boasting about uh, how they're going to, you know, rise up against Barack Obama and defend their their rights, they don't actually do anything of the sort. Yeah. Um, uh, they're all a bit of a larp. Um, uh, um, but uh, the um, yeah, in, t- in terms of uh, libertarian financial policy, I'm not terribly knowledgeable in this regard. I'm not terribly knowledgeable on economics in general. Um, but as I understand it, many libertarians, uh, I- I've read a book by Hans Hermann Hopper, who is a sort of uh, quite a controversial uh, person on the sort of libertarian scene, Um an anarcho-capitalist but from what i've read of him and sort of um other people at sort of the 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 Mises Institute or Mises Institute Mises yeah yeah um libertarians have a uh, i think a generally very opposed to sort of the abolition of the gold standard if i remember correctly um and Absolutely, yeah. yeah and i think the justification is that um the abolition of the gold standard has allowed money to just be this very subjective thing which has allowed governments to um to you know lessen its value to basically uh, you know cause inflation and uh, i think uh, it was murray rothbard or, or thomas Sowell i think who said inflation is um is the government's way of stealing from you without you knowing it
1: um Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, I think when we we talk about the gold standard, I think it would help to compare it with the arguments for free speech. Uh, Censorship is when the government takes your money through taxation and for the privilege, they tell you what not to say. The abolition of the gold standard is the same thing, but in some ways it's a bit more serious because they control the very thing that controls your freedom. The person who controls what your money is worth the person who controls what kind of money you can transact with with another human being are ultimately going to be able to control everything they'll be able to control your dress they'll be able to control what you cover your face with and you don't need to be in iran for that to happen as we all found out at least theirs has a religious basis and i respect people's religion i don't respect pseudoscience um and you the list could go on property rights and anyone Who's ever had to buy a car, anyone who's ever had to buy a piece of property, anyone who's had to start their own business will see firsthand that this quagmire of regulations are really designed to keep the ordinary man down. And this is actually one area, before we get back to the gold standard, where the the socialists and the leftists, they actually diagnose the problem correctly, but then they prescribe the same solution as that which created the situation they claim to oppose. Big corporations love nothing more than fiat money, high tax and high regulation, because it's the government allowing them to prosper by virtue of the fact that their competition either is bankrupted or is so overregulated that someone who would want to start a competing business cannot get off the ground. Fiat money, high tax, and high regulation is monopoly. It's a duopoly, really, but um, it acts as one. It's big business working in total collaboration, both openly and in terms of the benefits they derive from this collaboration with. Big government. But back to the gold standard. The reason that the gold standard is important is it lets individual human beings have a benchmark of what something is worth that's beyond government control. Imagine if the government were able to change the meaning of an inch or a foot every time they wanted to. I mean, they did something similar when they said, we've all got to speak metric. Uh, Metric, um, it it hasn't changed much in the last 250, 300 years, but um, uh, there's something similar going on there with taking taking freedom to weigh things and measure things the way we want, the way people want out of the hands. I mean, if someone, for example, were to say, I'm going to measure this in terms of the length of my hand, here's my hand, and I'm going to give you one hand's worth of of sausage. I know that might seem a bit uh, Soho-y, but (laughs) I'm trying to to make, um, trying to give people an example of the fact that in libertarianism, there's a resistance to outside forces saying what people can use to transact. The only thing that libertarianism does reject, and frankly rejects it a bit more thoroughly than modern liberalism, conservatism or socialism, is that libertarians are very much opposed to defrauding people. So long as the two people or the two organizations or the two groups of people transacting agree with the transaction, there is no need for any government regulation or so-called oversight side. And what gold does is it allows people a benchmark which from The Bible up to the up to the early 20th century was universally known and it's still respected as something people can understand to quickly and accurately derive value. But many libertarians, myself included, also are in favor of something called free banking. Someone could transact in silver. Someone if they really wanted to could trade a chicken for a hide of leather. None of this would be prohibited. Free banking simply means the abolition of legal tender laws. And when that happens, most people will, for pragmatic reasons, gravitate towards gold, some will gravitate towards silver, some will gravitate towards other things. but. The two things that I'm really getting at are, one, gold is important because it's something that everyone can understand, it's value, and the value isn't controlled by any central authority. And thing number two, free banking says that two people can make a transaction, run a business in whatever currency they choose, not what someone else chooses. And so long as there's no fraud involved, there's no no harm to anyone.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I... As I said, I'm not very knowledgeable on economics, um, and I assume there were reasons uh, for why the gold standard was abolished. Because um, if I r- recall correctly, it happened around the time of the Great Depression, uh, after the First World War. But uh, from a more sort of, on a fir- from a first impressions point of view, I've never really um, understood uh, fiat currency. I don't think anyone does. Um, and I, I, from a, a free freedom point of view, you know. I totally get what thomas Sowell was saying about how inflation is is it just another method of uh, of theft um w- w- without you even knowing about it if you if you're storing your money in a safe for 20 years and the government causes inflation that <laughs> and, and your your the money you've stored decreases by like 30 percent the value decreases by 30 percent you know that's that's awful um and So I think. Why do you think
1: houses are unaffordable in much of southern England? hmm. Inflation created by fiat money.
0: Yeah. So there are other reasons, but I would say that's the main one. From so from a sort of as I said, I'm not knowledgeable in in economics, but from from a sort of uh, instinctive uh, first impressions point of view, I I totally uh, I totally get the argument for the for the gold standard, Um, and it is not just a matter of sort of economics; it is a matter of sort of human freedom. Um, in order to have this sort of universally recognized value rather than a subjective value just backed up by the power of the state and the you know the power the, the power of the military power of the state basically um uh, but um before we started the podcast you were talking about is is this uh sound money you were talking about sound money um and that's a strange it, is the, is, is the, does this refer to sort of, is this like a broad term to refer to libertarian economics or does it have a more specific meaning?
1: Look, sound money is money that can't be manipulated by central authorities. So, for example, the interest rates for, for borrowing in gold are determined by market interactions which is just a sort of highfalutin way of saying whatever two people agree to be logical where with fiat money central banks are able to create inflation and they do it all the time and perhaps most perversely inflation which in the world of sound money is is an evil that sometimes happens because of circumstance so they say oh inflation we want as if they can predict things it's all it's, it's all very sort of paganistic uh is is what it is and it's what's made houses unaffordable for many people there are other issues obviously immigration supply and demand but when you when when you look at areas even outside of you know central London the price of a house in the 1950s versus today it's extraordinary the price of a pint and yes taxation over taxation certainly plays a role but the amount of money that people have got even if they've got on paper 300 pounds 300 pounds in 1955 is a lot different than three hundred pounds today. I mean, when Harold Wilson devalued the pound at the tail end of the Bretton Woods system, he said the pound in your pocket won't change. That was possibly the most dishonest thing that a prime minister had ever said. It's worse than weapons of mass destruction if you ask me. So if people wonder why the young generation have been so badly screwed, and why the generation after this, unless there's serious monetary reform, are going to be even more screwed, it's because wages will never it will never catch up with this inflation. And the only people it benefits are those who are already asset rich. And there's a term for this called the Cantillon effect. That means if you own five properties, And the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve starts quantitative easing, which is just um, an up-your-ass word for money printing, you know, press print on the the Xerox machine and out comes comes the digital cash. Um, When when these governments do that and the price of houses go up, if you've got five houses, well, cha-ching, because something that was worth a million pounds yesterday is going to be worth two million pounds or three million pounds in two, three years time. I mean, I'm exaggerating in terms of the percentages, but that is what happens. And so the people who already, have a good life are going to absolutely be chuffed to death by this. But anyone who's sort of short of that Jeff Bezos level is going to have a really, really bad time, no matter how hard they work. It really is a way of screwing ordinary people. And the the, the socialists, weirdly, they, they kind of agree, but their solution is more of the same. Let's print more money. Let's have more taxation, which only results in even more inflation.
0: Yes. Um... Especially for the young um, um, I, people, um, th- th- there's no, there's no inheritance anymore. Like if you, if you, if, um, from what I've read of sort of Hans hermann Hopper, um, he was describing um, sort of uh, Europe of two hundred years ago, and there was a big emphasis on inheritance, on, on, a, on having a, a, a dynasty, on, on leaving, you know, on gradually accumulating wealth for your descendants. And um, there's no sense of that anymore. It's just sort of drip feed is it's the almost the opposite your your an, your ancestors have more money and then you get a tiny fraction of that and it just it, the fraction becomes smaller and smaller as the generations pass um uh, and with with housing as well it's uh, uh, nimbyism has made it almost impossible um for new for new houses to be built in this country um which is just making house prices rocket um the, the gig economy is making it difficult to be anything other uh, but a wage slave for, uh, or not, or less than a wage slave for young people. Um, it's uh, it's a very depressing sort of, it's a very depressing country for the young. Um, a very a gerontocratic system, um, and I and the worst thing is young people aren't aren't resentful about this. They're not angry. They're not they're not up in arms trying to make their life better for themselves. They're just they or they're just meekly. Uh, just meekly ask for sort of better mental health services or whatever, or maybe our mental health would be better if we had, you know, if we had better prospects. If this was a, a um, if this was a a more flourishing country for us. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm in, I'm a strange position really, and as I said, I'm not I'm not too knowledgeable on, on economics. I kind of exist in this sort of, I'm kind of open to all ideas, um, and I'm I exist in this sort of strange middle ground where I. I'm sort of anti-blob. I understand like the I'm uh, how much money is just being wasted by the British state and sort of funne- funneled off into these stupid uh charity projects by um uh, you know Quaker charities and uh, NGOs um and how much is being wasted um and uh, but I'm I'm also on the other hand sort of a, a, a socialistic um and I'm 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 skeptical of sort of the power of um of of capital of capitalism um and big uh, uh big monopolies and corporations so i sort of exist in this sort of strange uh, middle space um and i i think i have i, th- I think i've fundamentally the same even if i come to different conclusions i have the same instinct as you um in that i feel i i very much value sort of freedom personal freedom um, um even if we we come to uh, different conclusions i think that sort of drive is the same. Um, I hate the feeling of being sort of suffocated. Um, uh, but yeah, and and, and especially in, the, in terms of sort of gerontocracy, in the past year, um, we've we've seen this sort of reach a peak in terms of the young sort of sacrificing a year of their lives uh, so to protect um, to protect us, you know, uh, uh, the very old. Um, and and receiving nothing in return by the end of it um if i receive like a huge sort of cash settlement for the year year of opportunities that i've missed um maybe i'd be a little less resentful of lockdown um i actually think can...
1: someone should try ancient hmm. law of tort i think someone should bring up tort against the government for that very reason and i don't think it would work only because judges have become so used to this um what do they call judicial review uh which is a bit of a joke that they've forgotten that ancient torts are the best prevention against defrauding it's the best prevention against social ills not regulations not health and safety but a good or a good old honest tort so I'd love it if a group of young people got together and tried it. I don't think it would work, but, you know, Peter Hitchens might uh, write about it in the Mail on Sunday, which is all young people can hope for until the money system collapses and can start fresh.
0: Yeah. um, Maybe we will. Maybe we'll... That's something to consider. Um, So uh, what's what has been your perspective on sort of lockdown over the past year obviously as a libertarian you couldn't have been couldn't have been too uh, keen on it
1: No, I I find it absolutely detestable. And it doesn't surprise me that governments in general would want to do this. A government always wants to increase its power for the same reason that normal people want to increase their happiness and their prosperity, which says a lot about the kind of people who tend to go into government with a few noble exceptions. Um... I don't, for example, think MPs should be paid. Um, you didn't see Gladstone or Disraeli getting paid. They did it and they had to look after themselves. And it taught them a bit about restraint and prudence and morality. Um, so it doesn't surprise me the governments do it. I do think as someone who has this view that England was still England, even though 1997 happened, and to some extent that 1914 happened, but I think 1997 was, in a way, even worse, uh, because you couldn't even use the excuse of of helping heroes who made the ultimate sacrifice. No one sacrificed anything to bring that wretched blur into power, Uh, but if, if one has this idea that England is the land of Magna Carta in terms of something more than a rusty plaque at Runny Mead, I could have thought, well, of course the French would have done. And, of course, the Germans, ruled by a former East German Chancellor, would do this, but certainly not in England, certainly not in the United Kingdom, but, of course, reality bites, and this government is just as enthralled with the kind of absolutism the post royal absolutism that we see elsewhere and there's of course the famous letter from sage saying that they saw china doing this and china's already a surveillance state um and so it's not shocking that they would uh, a surveillance state's gonna surveil uh but when they saw that um, incompetent italy uh which remains a geographical expression so much so that now everyone's home is their castle because they can't leave it, they don't know how to operate the drawbridge. When Italy did that uh, as a European country, that's obviously more like Britain than like China, uh, they, they became aroused uh, as those in power do. And I think it shocked them in a way, which is almost a compliment to them and an insult to the general public, that people just so passively took it. They thought, are people really that detached from habeas corpus, Magna Carta, Bill of Rights, that they'll just sit down and take it? And they bloody well did. And now they've all gone out and they voted for it again. I mean, nothing was more sad for me than the fact that the incumbent parties in their respective parts of the disunited kingdom, they all cleaned up up, Labour increased in Wales, in Hartlepool, um, the Tories um, had a massive victory um, in Scotland, the SNP, um, you know, as, as strong as they've ever been. And it's just heartbreaking. I mean, I would have much preferred people to vote for the monster raving loony party, just anything but the status quo. So but I can admit when I've at least for now lost the argument, the argument for liberty has been lost. But one of the great things about the English parliamentary tradition is that nothing's set in stone. The tide can change. I just have no idea when.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a troubling thing, which um, uh, we uh, people who have, have been opposed to um, and the lockdown measures have to sort of deal with is that we are in the minority and the majority um, are very uh, zealously in favour of lockdown. Perhaps not so much as the media says. I would estimate sort of it's something like uh, 70% in favor of lockdown and there's there's a larger group of people who are against it but they'll never admit that publicly because it's become such a taboo but i still think it's in the majority um and that's that's a very troubling thing um and in 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 many in many ways this is sort of the uh, the culmination of sort of a, the long sort of snuffing out of english liberty over the last few decades um Uh, Obviously, after the, well, it's hard not to uh, to pin everything down to the the World Wars, but in both World Wars saw a drastic uh, increase in the power of the British state. Um, One Frenchman remarked after the First World War that England before and after the First World War was like France before and after the French Revolution. Um, The society had been completely reshaped um, by this huge state. Uh, effort um and then after this in the second world war of course we had uh war socialism um uh and you know and rationing um and i think that really shaped and then of course then after the second world war uh we had sort of a uh, keynesianism um and and the welfare state um but then you, you have other not so well-known developments uh like the the abolition of unanimous verdict in jury trial um which i think was abolished in the, important, yeah yeah,
1: important.
0: yeah exactly which i think was abolished in the 60s um and then obviously everything sort of sped up under blair with uh, counter-terrorism and that's really that's really the that was really the death knell of um of english liberty under blair it's crazy when you look at the legislation that was passed i mean there's a there's literally a treaty um i mentioned this one of my previous podcasts which allows any British citizen to be extradited to face trial in the United States um, for a crime they commit in Britain. So basically, American laws apply to Britain. Um, this was a law passed in the sort of Blair uh, counter-terrorism either era. Um, it's and it's it's, it's crazy. Um, of course, there's no sort of um, opposite treaty. British laws don't apply in America. But if Amer- if the United States wants someone here, they can just pick them up and ship them to Guantanamo Bay. Um, and obviously a similar process happened in America during that time uh, with Guantanamo Bay, uh, counter-terrorism measures. I mean, it's, it's ghastly, the, the stories you hear of what's going on there. The so-called land of the free and home of the brave, um, American liberty was snuffed out very quickly. And, um, and so we'll, we'll, lockdown is almost the final culmination of that. Also, um, in terms of counter counter extreme counterterrorism became counter ex, counter extremism you know whatever whatever that means um and that's that's so sort they, of t- they
1: take the human element totally out of it you know a terrorist when you see one mm. but extremism what does that mean i'm extremely hungry should someone report me <laughs> it's exactly just, it's, it's, it's this dilution of language
0: yes and um so yeah that's uh, now that it was very foolish conservatives of 10 years ago under blair was sort of Supporting these measures, which would then be turned around within the next uh, next ten years and used against someone who says something homophobic, and he gets thro- you know an outdoor preacher who says something homophobic, he gets thrown in jail on hate speech, uh, hate hate speech laws and commun on the Communications Act. Um, it's it's I I've I've known people who have been subjected to this um, kind of uh, these sort of counter extremism measures, and it they are treated like political political prisoners um it, it, it uh, you know it's and it's it, it, it i'm not uh, i'm not going to justify sort of a lot of these people are like neo-nazis very unpleasant sorts but that do, I, that doesn't justify the um complete complete abnegation of their rights you know for a society that's apparently so focused on human rights it doesn't do anything when people often with sort of mental health issues have their you know their entire their entire lives ruined and uh, their, all their rights denied and put in the most horrific um, horrific uh, situations and that's happened to a few people that I've that I've uh, heard of and um, and seen. Um, and so lockdown is really the culmination of all these things that've sort of been happening step by step. I think it, it was one of the American founding fathers who said that tyranny does rarely happens with sort of a dramatic coup. Um, it's usually uh, small steps. Um, that that lead to this situation Um, and that's that's what's happened in England and America and I think we've got personally I think we've got to contend with the fact that liberty and democracy aren't um, mutually um, they're kind of almost mutually exclusive to a certain extent Um, because for the vast majority of people aren't interested in politics and when they see when you when the media sends out a scare story like terrorism or extremism or a, vi- a deadly virus they will immediately lunge into sort of the arms of the state um i don't i, I and england when it was at its most free was sort of an oligarchy on under these uh <laughs> under these sort of uh, landed gentrymen um and i, I don't that that seems to be to me to be a um a contra- like some a contradiction within sort of Within sort of the discourse on liberty is that most people, most people aren't libertarians. Most people do not value liberty. And if you even even people who lived under East Germany, that you know the the common working class um, under East Germany, you know, if you ask them about it, many of them say, "Oh, you know, it was great. They wish they could go back to the Stasi." You know, um, I think most human beings, I um, just value order over liberty, and that's that's kind of. That's 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 a real problem. Um, I think that we have to sign a kind of resolve somehow. I don't know what you think about that.
1: Well I think I, I think that they value order over liberty so long as it's someone else's liberty being sacrificed. Mm-hmm. But this slippery slope means that eventually the person sitting there saying, oh, the Stasi is okay because I've never read any subversive literature. And then one day a book they purchased last year is deemed by the Commissar to be subversive literature. And all of a sudden they they wish that they had liberty. I think um, getting to what you said about democracy, not many people understand the concept of democracy. Democracy is an abstract concept. Suffrage, particularly universal suffrage is a very finite and very specific concept and liberty I would consider a grand and great, in the the literal meaning, uh, philosophy. In England, liberty existed because of its culture and its constitution that was non-codified. In America, it existed largely because of the written constitution. Um, And throughout those times, between Magna Carta and and the most recent representation of the people, I think the most recent one was when the Wilson government lowered the voting age to 18, the, the, the franchise and the nature of suffrage changed multiple times. But a traditional English liberty was always clearly defined, even in the United States, the way that they, for a country that's only been around a much shorter period, the way they elect senators has changed dramatically from the 1790s. um, And it changed in the early 20th century. But the, those 10 um, big, beautiful, as Trump would say, amendments to the Constitution, their Bill of Rights, those were the same. So suffrage changes, uh, because suffrage is a tool, democracy is a vague concept, and liberty or principles that at least in the Anglosphere, and maybe to a degree in Switzerland and the Netherlands, uh, they're inalienable, uh, inalienable, but um, not so much anymore. And um, Is that because suffrage has expanded? Maybe. I think think it's more because the standards of education have plummeted so much. I think it's because people have gone from a society that was overwhelmingly Christian to one that's not only hostile to Christianity but that openly mocks morality. The idea that one might know what to do because they have certain feelings and because their faith is mocked. Now they need to be told what to do. It's as though they've gone from a very benign form of Christianity to a kind of Spanish Inquisition wrapped up in an Iranian theocracy powered by Chinese uh, surveillance technology. It's really quite terrible but I would say that the lack of morality and the lack of um and the lack of good education has done this um, and I would turn to Japan as an example of a country that even though some of uh, pornography is very popular in Japan uh they love rock music uh, as do I um but no one's stabbing anyone in Japan, no one's spitting on people, no one's defecating in the streets as they are in parts of the United States now, and it's because they've retained their cultural morality. No one's enforcing it with Saudi-style morality police, they just sort of know, and England just sort of knew. But then when the, when the cultural left took over, from the, well, one could say from the 60s to the present day, but they were around in different forms before then. People have gone from just sort of knowing what to do to now they need to be told uh, what to do at every at, at every instance. And this is bad, whether you whether you dislike the far left or the far right, because if you run a country based on whoever's in power telling you what to do, well, it could be the far left telling you what to do. And then five, 10 years later, it could be the far right. I don't want anyone. Um, <clears throat> Pardon me, telling me what to do. I, I, I know myself what I can do. It's informed by culturally derived morality.
0: <clears throat> Indeed. Pardon me. Um, I, I, I do, I do get that um, argument as well. Um, in that we have become a much less um, educated society. Um, if you look at the people who were advocating for universal suffrage in Victorian times, um, they, they, they all make it. They, you know, they make it very clear that. Um, education is a precondition to universal suffrage um, and it, once the, the you know the common man could be educated then he could be uh then he, then he could you know take part in a vibrant uh, democracy um they are these are all and, and of course christian morality as well um the wonderful thing about belief in god is sort of god acts as a kind of all-seeing eye um uh, without god we have to replace that all-seeing eye with uh, cctv cameras and mass surveillance um, because there's yeah. uh, I've heard it described before. morality is what you do when you think no one's looking um, and if you think God's looking you're probably um, you know that's that there's a there's a there's a barrier there um, to stop you um, doing bad things in secrecy but without a belief in God you have to rely on you know someone has to step in and take God's place and that's a form of uh, CCTV cameras mass surveillance um, so yeah I think th- there are many layers there that they will sort of in order to have a free society, they all have to prop each other up. and this is something sort of um Peter Hitchens is very good at pro- pointing out is that um uh, these sort the, 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 the cultural uh, left, the cultural revolutionaries of the the you know the the mid 20th century uh, they were in in their quest for sort of personal liberation. they were actually tearing down the uh, the institutions that, kept them from being uh, serfs of the state uh, institutions like family and church you know these were the uh the extra extra you know supra state institutions institutions that went beyond the state that sort of kept society harmonious and in place um, and without by tearing them down all all that's left is the state um, and they've unwittingly made in their quest for personal re- liberation i mean yeah, in their quest for personal liberation, they've made themselves—they've uh, uh, created a lonely world where it's just them and and the state, and no one else, um, se- or, or everyone separated from each other. Um, uh, and I, so, I—I I, so is—I think this is—is um, is perhaps something not uh, all sort of freedom-minded people get. Is that in order to have? Or this is another paradox, perhaps, is that if you have. Uh, in order for liberty to survive you need these other things um uh, and it's it's not just about sort of hacking away at the state to make it smaller you also need to sort of promote a healthy healthy sort of self-sufficient society perhaps
1: no absolutely i think that i think that The the only danger there is I think that puts a lot of people off embracing liberty because they think, oh, God, we'll never get back to this society where the family is functional, where church attendance is high, where even those who are atheistic have grown up reading the King James Bible, the Book of Common Prayer. They know hymns and it all keeps people on the level. There's There's this sameness which helps to enhance our individuality because... If, if it's the person that you're disagreeing with speaks the same English language, you can use all sorts of colorful language, funny insults, you can, you know, be Oscar Wilde at the trial and all of this sort of thing. When you're speaking with someone who, let's say, who has an basic, you're not really going to reveal yourself to say the train station is over there you know very basic bland inoffensive language and and much like speaking the same language allows you to communicate your individuality If people had a similar cultural understanding, even if some people privately rebelled against it, look at Alistair Crawley, he was um, he was there long before Tony, but he rebelled against it, but he didn't overthrow anything, which is, I think, where the important aspect of liberty comes out. His home was his castle, but he didn't want the government to censor the the Christian man in his castle in the house next door, where they want to do that today, now that the state has become this, this, this sort of satanic demigod. On earth, and I use satanic quite literally because I think it's quite unchristian. It's the idea that we're too stupid and too wicked to be able to have morality without someone telling us what to do. But so, the danger is that people say, Oh, just because this is a forgotten past, we have to give up on liberty. I don't think so. I think that you can and you must. Rebuild liberty and rebuild the family and all of these things at the same time. Because we've got to remember inflation has helped to break up the family just as much as the encouragement of the of far left academics. I mean, a man who can no longer afford to marry because he can't support a wife and children, he knows that he's financially fucked. If you were to ask him to name, you know, Horkheimer or any other these cultural boxes from the 40s and 50s, he wouldn't know. He'd probably think that it was a Croatian tennis player. So I don't think that we can underrate the the enormous damage that inflation has done and making it impossible for people who want to have a family and a home and shelter for their children and to provide to them. And they'll just say, well, at least if I live in a little box by myself, I'm not inflicting, I'm not inflicting this misery on a wife for a yet-to-be-born child.
0: Yes, Um and that's something uh, that's, that's, it's always, that's, um, you know, it's all very well being uh, sort of promoting natalist policies. Um, um, but it, it, it's useless if people can't, don't actually have the money to start their own family. I mean, it's almost impossible for most people um, in Britain to, for most people in Britain to uh, start family on a single wage. Um, Certainly a family with any dignity yeah exactly i mean, i suppose people could do it if they really tried but they would be very they'd be you know very hard pressed in the current uh, economic situation um so <laughs> there's a the, you you do you need a sort of um in order to have a, a sort of uh, social conservatism you need um you need to have the money for it basically um so i, I totally get that um uh, from for, uh, how infl- you know how inflate from that point of view um um, this is a bit of a, a, a tangent but uh, uh, you mentioned sort of Switzerland and um, uh, Norway um, uh, and, Switzerland uh, and Holland oh, ho- not that I have Holland. anything
1: against Norway you know, <laughs> yeah. Vikings and you, Greeks, yeah. um,
0: but I, I wrote an article for the Mallard um, last year called On Saxon Liberty and I'm very interested in sort of history um, an English like uh, sort of dark age history um, and um, it's, uh, it seems to me the uh, you can trace because liberty is very strong in the sort of Anglo-Saxon world and you can sort of trace that right back to the earliest earliest sort of uh, Germanic tribes who would sort of who would to to our early sort of uh, northern European warrior culture um, because the the warrior was a free man because he could sort of defend himself um, and in uh, we used to have sort of uh, it would be It all stems from the sort of colonial uh, uh, culture that sort of came to be in Northern Europe um, as opposed to sort of Southern Europe um, because these sort of uh, wild, cold lands that would place a greater emphasis on the individual warrior and on sort of the nuclear family. um. Whereas in Southern Europe, these are much older civilizations. The state has been there for much longer um they're much more community-based um and so that's i, I so I, I saw in that article i sort of traced this sort of uh this uh traced english liberty back to uh the old ancient germanic peoples um and you, you it, it, and i argue, i argued that liberty survives perhaps not so much anymore but it did so the cultural liberty survived best in sort of in England and its colonies um but it still survives in in a certain way in in places like Switzerland um in the the Germanic countries on the on the continent but of course they have been they've all been Romanized to an extent um they've all they've all adopted sort of Roman civil law um but even so you know Switzerland's a very sort of a a freedom-based country as is as is Holland um but that's a tangent I just thought It's very, I I have a great interest in this and sort of tracking where the sort of uniqueness of the the English people comes from. Um, And I do
1: agree with all of that. hmm. I think that one thing that's very interesting in that is how the the Scandinavian countries in particular, um, they went from being societies that, you know, with respect were almost that of the noble savage as recently as the 19th century. And then in the late 19th, early 20th century, they all collectively... I would say gave up and said, right, we want a society governed not by Thor and the wild individual uh, who rejected even many elements of Christianity because it reminded them too much of the Holy Roman Empire. And they all of a sudden said, right, we're going to do, uh, we're going to be one, one set of people governed by trade unions and, and Nordic socialist policies. And they all just sort of gave up at once. I mean, I'm sure at a cultural level, there's still that spirit there. I mean. Uh, that's why there's no, you know, black metal bands coming out of North Korea that I know of. Um, but um, weirdly enough, uh, talk about tangents. There's a Slovenian, very sort of weird avant-garde, sort of metallic type of band called, um, um, oh God, it was the old name for, it, the name will come to me. Is it The like German that? name for the Slovenian
0: Pardon? Is it Liebach you're
1: talking about? That, that's the one. Right. And they actually performed in North Korea uh, a few years ago. Um, it was the weirdest cultural exchange that you've ever seen. Um, but what got me thinking of that is this band that sort of was, a, albeit a caricaturish version of this sort of Northern European style Uh, sort of Anglo-Saxon individualism of of the medieval and pre-medieval ages. They were able to play in in North Korea and how soon till they get censored here? I mean, they're a band of the left, but like Rammstein, who they say copied them, they use a lot of right-wing symbolism to make a left-wing point. And Mm. overall, they're they're obviously, they're not party political, they're they're iconoclasts. And, And I'm an iconoclast myself in a way, which is weird for someone who respects the established church um, in spite of its wokery and who respects family life and who's never been on the wrong side of the law, except for parking fines and wanting desperately to smoke a cigarette in a pub. Uh, but, um, but I, I love iconoc- I-, I love the iconoclastic um, ethos because when it's right it helps to trash something that needs to be uh, you know put to grass and when it's wrong it helps it helps renew the faith in that which they're trying to destroy so people who are iconoclasts are very very important for even when they're wrong even when they're wrong
0: yes um as a sort of artistically minded person myself um i very much understand that um i've never liked sort of um puritanism especially artistic puritanism um i mentioned this in, uh, in a podcast with um uh on uh, for bornbrook magazine i should probably mention this now i forgot to mention it at the beginning but um for my listeners i um i've in i did an interview uh, for our current predicament which is uh, an interview podcast for bornbrook magazine so that can be that's available on youtube um and spotify um, anyway, I just thought I'd get that out there. But in that, in that, I sort of mentioned my sort of distaste for sort of artistic puritanism. Um, the, the point of the artist is to sort of, sort of ex- explore places that the human, human reason hasn't perhaps reached yet and sort of um, just sort of explore the wilderness beyond, beyond the, um, beyond the, beyond reason. Um, and so, I, you know, my, my final year film, which I'm working on at the moment, it's sort of it's got all these different ideas in there. Sort of got nihilism as well as sort of um, sort of a more Christian message as well, and it's all kind of mixed together. And I can imagine sort of puritanical sorts watching that film and taking issue with it, saying, "Oh, it's too nihilistic, or it's too Christian." Um, whereas it's just it's it can be read either way. It's sort of a it's a it's it's just an artistic mix, and I don't like the idea of being sort of. Uh, you know, uh, constrained when art is all about the imagination and uh, and exploring, just exploring things for the sake of it, really, um, and making people yeah, think. Um, so yeah, uh, I, that, the, the iconoclast is a very imp- important um, uh, place in our culture, um, and uh, and uh, that's part of the reason why our culture has become and our media has become so deadened, really, uh, in recent years. It all feels like it was built made in a committee. Everything is, it, everything's on one hand is sort of weirdly safe, sort of politically, but it's also kind of edgy and grotesque in another way as well. Um, but in a sort of like bland way, like I a sort of, uh, you know, you get all these sort of Amazon Prime or like Netflix streaming shows, which are really gory and edgy and like vulgar, and it just comes off as childish. But it's all
1: prefabricated. Yeah, It's a bit like when they replaced the flawed but organic slum with the intentionally flawed, I would say, tower Mm. blocks. That's, it's sort of tower block entertainment. Everything in its nice, ugly concrete row. Don't mind the dust and the must and the lack of fire safety. It's good for you. Here's some state approved subversive video content, which Mm. is an oxymoron, but it's that people swallow.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's kind of, that's the impression I get from so much modern media. Is that it's sort of it, it's it's edgy, but in a safe way, and it's just that almost makes it worse. As for the tower blocks, I mean, I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm open to more sort of avant-garde. Like, I wouldn't say. Well, I, 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 I hate. Obviously, they're very ugly buildings. I hate architectural ugliness. Um, but I'm open to sort of uh, sort of uh, new architectural ideas, I guess. Um, and maybe I don't know. Maybe the tower blocks were they like you could make a tower block uh that worked perhaps um and maybe they just did it wrong i think the, the you problem... could make
1: anything that works i mean i'm not opposed i'm not one of these people that oh if it's new it's bad my mm. whole complaint is that what's new has been intentionally uh ruined by people who have no imagination yeah i'm i'm all for the new it's just i don't like what the new is now i'm in, in in fact, forget the new. I want the next, but let's yes. make the next better than the new.
0: Exactly, that's that's my point of view as well. Um, and so, in terms of tower blocks, the reason they fail failed, they wanted them to be sort of flourishing communities in the sky, which is a it's a nice ideal. Um, uh, the the problem was they're not natural thoroughfares. Like there's no reason why you would want to go down these corridors in tower blocks to get somewhere else because they only lead to other people's houses. So that just meant they became. It, they they just, That just meant they became full of crime and, you know, uh, drug addicts and things. Um,
1: yeah, they forgot that people weren't birds.
0: Yeah. Would make um, a
1: lovely birdhouse.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, people weren't just going to walk through these little corridors for no reason, unless there's something at the other side of it. And there are one or two examples of sort of uh, apartment blocks like this that actually got it right, and that they were they were designed in such a way that they were natural thoroughfares. Um, I think there's some examples in uh, Germany or, or on the continent uh, where the, uh, the tower block kind of leads into like a shopping center or and out, out into the streets. So you would have a reason to sort of walk down these corridors because they actually take you somewhere. Um, so I think that there's, there are ways you can probably fix them. And also I think you should make them a lot less ugly as well, because <laughs> they do look hideous. Um, but I, I think mean- the mansion block was a
1: wonderful way of high de- creating high density housing. Um, from the late very end of the 19th century, I mean, some of these mansion blocks are absolutely gorgeous. They all overlook a garden. Um, the rule was that all of the every, every building needed to have a certain amount of windows. And some of the, they're still standing, and in parts of central London they're selling for a lot of money. Uh, where these tower blocks, I mean, they're op- they're newer, but already they were obsolete. Look at Ronan Point, which I think was sixty-eight or sixty-nine. That was when it sort of dawned on people that this new, you know, white heat, white flame rubbish was, you know, you know, the only it was it was cinder.
0: Yeah, I think the, I think that the trouble is. Um... I'm I'm not opposed to kind of idealism, uh, but if an ideal doesn't work, you should get rid of it as quickly as possible and um, come up with something better and improve on it. Oh, it's crazy. Anyone
1: who's ever started a business could could absolutely relate to that, because that's what starting a business is. You start a business because you have an idea, and if you think your idea is a good one, it becomes a kind of ideal. And very few people in business get it right the first time. So, But that, again, it's the difference between people who think they're gods on earth, a.k.a. government, Mm. and people who live in the real world, where when something doesn't work, you bin it and try something else.
0: Yeah, Um. Uh, and the trouble is like, I, I can't believe like some of these are sort of UN sort of world heritage sites um, when they really should have been uh, demolished pretty much like 10 years after they were built when they realised they weren't working and replaced with something better um, yeah I'm not I'm, my, my entire politics is sort of um, uh, is, is, is sort of I, I, I recognise sort of three points of politics is that there's a need to restore some things there's a need to conserve sort of what little is left and but there's also a need to sort of innovate um and move forward because the if you are if you talk to um if you talk to ordinary people then they they always are so they often associate the past with failure and they they will there's some somewhat superstitiously say oh you can't go back to the past um uh which which i understand i guess you need to you need to offer them something new and exciting um and while you're doing that you can sort of sneak in <laughs> the stuff that of you know stuff you need, might need to restore and stuff that ne- which needs to be uh, kept the same um that's that's sort of the entire basis of my uh, my politics at the moment really um i'm not i'm not fond of this sort of sort of uh i, I get the appeal of certain people who um who especially in my generation on, on the sort of online right. They have a sort of kind of nostalgia for the past, and I get that because it's very past is very beautiful. Um, but you need to you need to combine that with with something new. You can't uh, you can't solely sort of larp as a as an 18th century aristocrat. You need to. Um, it seems like a very reactionary mindset, especially for young people.
1: It is, and I I used to mock it because some of it is it, it is quite funny. Some of it, but. It's there's a reason for it, and it's when you someone who was let's say an average person in the 1880s, they were it was quite an optimistic age. What was new then was quite inspiring, and when the people when when there's an entire generation who either have no beliefs at all or who look for solace exclusively in the past it's because the present must be quite rubbish but obviously as you say the solution is to do something about it moving forward rather than pretending that whilst the world is being literally and metaphorically muzzled outside you can retreat into that lovely 18th century aristocratic um pastime called Facebook and talk about uh pheasant shooting when you live in a tower block I mean realism is important because if you fantasy is important for inspiration but if it remains there you the world will be bleak you've got to take that fantasy take that idealism and actually do something with it whether it's starting your own business whether it's trying to oh god help us stand for a political office which you know uh oh god that might make someone cynical but um I, I, I'd certainly not discourage it. I mean, it was Frank Zappa, my, one of my favourite American iconoclasts of all time, who in 1988 said that uh, every young person should go out and vote. Stop complaining, even though afterwards he said, yeah, maybe I was wrong. Maybe voting doesn't make a difference. So uh, I, I'm a bit on, on on the fence about that. But, you know, you've got to try things before you know that, 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 they're, that they're going to fail.
0: Uh, yeah. Um, in, ter- in terms of voting, I'm sort of, a bit ambivalent about party politics at the moment because obviously um with the local elections it's just i don't really care if labor um if people were celebrating the end of labor like who cares the tories are just as bad at this point um they've locked you in your house for a year and you're still voting for them um uh, so i think I, I don't think that's a call for sort of uh, people can interpret that as, as a kind of nihilism as just giving up but i think there's 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 meta politics there's politics beyond politics um uh, and you you want to, uh, like what I'm doing with my Hierophant uh, magazine, I'm trying to sort of promote a kind of sort of a civilizing art, I guess, um, uh, uh, rather than most of the art we get, which is very like anti-civilizational, which is all about sort of tearing things down rather than building them up. So um, that's what I'm, that's how I'm trying to affect uh, change. There's so much we can do to make our country a better place. Um, politics as Westminster and Washington are sort of the last step they're the most obvious expression of power but there's a whole web of power below that which includes sort of art and culture and uh, the academy um which uh, we, we we you know we have to take part in and I think the right especially neglects because they somehow think that all that matters is sort of party politics when the left has achieved so much success over the last 40 years through things like the academy through subversive academics and uh, and uh, uh, and artists um we we need we at least need to sort of dab our toes in that um if you go to a universe, any universe arts section of any university it's basically just a a um a, you know a leftist uh, uh, recruitment center um you see like pictures of marks on the walls um but we, we i think we definitely um and, and, and also on the other hand we need to um just as universities are sort of um, leftist recruitment centers, you know, housing, um, good wages. These are sort of, these are conservative recruitment centers, basically, you know. Um, and that's something the Conservative Party sort of neglected over the last 10 years. If the Conservative Party had spent the last 10, instead of bailing out the banks, if they'd spent their time making sure that, um, you know, people can, as many people can get a stake in society, can get houses, housing and um uh, stable careers as possible then they probably they wouldn't need to pander to the left so much as what they're doing now they probably get their own support and we could be a much more flourishing country than we are now um you you need people to have that sort of stake in society um which which uh uh dissuades them from sort of uh, radicalism um at the moment we've just well we've got the worst possible scenario where we've got a um for political stability anyway we've we've got this huge population of highly educated sort of uh, uh uh you know university graduates uh without any stake in society um living as sort of a, a gig uh living in this gig gig economy with no prospects for for the future um, and that's that i think that's a huge mistake which uh, the tory party will probably uh will um pay the price of sooner or later
1: no I, th- I think so and i think that one of the things that people can do from outside of elected offices is that they can campaign for the reduction in the size and scope of government if you're pissed off at the political parties and don't want to wait till you're long in the tooth to see them fall by the wayside the way that let's say the liberal party did um, in the years surrounding the Great War, one can say, look, why don't we make government a smaller part of our lives so that whether there's a red rosette attached to a human being in number 10 or a blue one, it isn't going to matter so much. I mean, people say, oh, why have politics become so contentious lately? Read all about it in the Huffington, Puffington Post. Um, no, the reason for that is because politics has encroached on our lives more so so of course it's only natural that it's going to become more more confrontational the child doesn't rebel against the father in the next town he rebels against his own father if he's overly strict or overly or overly odd uh, and, and that's what we're seeing with politics now because two sides are now competing like ferrets in a sack over which which demigod is going to liberate them liberate yourselves and the best way to do that is a non-partisan campaign to say look we need to reduce the size and scope of state and once you start from that then I think it will be the roads into government will become a bit more clear for people who have grown nihilistic by looking at the two main parties who stand for exactly the same thing.
0: Yeah um and uh w- it's i i don't i I don't understand people who um you know there's never a, there's never i've said this a lot on my podcast but there's never an end to politics um if 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 you if you you know if you may be uh you, you you may be upset that we're not sort of you know you're not seeing any sort of uh, party political success in westminster or whatever like your your favorite sort of brexit party candidate hasn't got elected into the house of commons but there's so much else you can be doing to sort of liberate yourself and your family and your community from uh from these uh, sort of parasitical forces and these uh, tyrannical forces in your life um especially, especially no, absolutely i mean yeah, yeah. just just ask chesco of politics is endless
1: he was shot in the head romania is still there i'm not suggesting shooting anyone mm-hmm. but but the point is uh, hubris does Uh, when your hubris catches up with you, life does go on. Again, one of the the beautiful things about the English system is that ideas were always bigger than the man. And I think one of the reasons for that is because the ideas were created by people who feared God. They didn't fear the state. Yeah. In Romania, they executed their God, but now they've got a new God, which is a slightly more benign, but equally corrupt European Union.
0: Hmm. what's your so what's your thoughts on um brexit and the situation with the european union um
1: well, there was a podcast you did fairly recently that I think actually summed it up brilliantly, which is that Brexit, It's a. I hate to quote John Lennon on a, on a conservative uh, type of podcast, but in the spirit of iconoclasm, I'm going to do so. Uh, his famous atheistic anthem, not the one that everyone's thinking of, but actually a much more interesting song called God. He said, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. And I would say that Brexit has become a way in which we measure our pain. Nothing is really changed changed and seeing the government and power I don't think anything significant is going to and that's the thing Boris is a kind of he's a kind of maniacal genius in that he's he's proved that if you if you chant a slogan in a relatable way enough times and if people say it always comes down to the haircut and I should know I've got horrible hair people look at Boris and they say no one with hair that bad could be a liar. And he is a liar, of course, but you know, the Whigs, and I don't mean, (laughs) I don't mean the predecessors to the liberals, you know, uh, the Whigs say it all. And so he's able to chant these slogans oven ready, get it done, let's defrost the ice or whatever he's saying now. And people believe it, but nothing's changed. I mean, the, the great irony of this is all of the horrible regulations from the European Union are still there. Um, and the government are enthralled with this kind of green stuff that, that might even go beyond the EU. And the only two minor benefits from EU membership that frankly, you didn't even need to be in the EU to get, which is, you know, being able to go to Greece without papers, please, and being able to, you know, sell your um. Smoked mackerel to a Frenchman without filling out paperwork. Those two things have gone, but all of the very real benefits that we could have attained. Uh, they're not being attained, which shows that Brexit is really not an idea, it's a process, and this government have no intention of fulfilling that process any more than Labour. The only difference is they're more clever. Labour will agitate people by saying, let's go back to the European Union. Diane Abbott will say the entire country of Bulgaria should be flown on several helicopters and landed in the middle of North Wales, um, which is a popular um, subject in Islington, so I'm told. Um, But the the Boris, and his thought in this sense, they're quite clever, because they realize that you can, you can brainwash people with slogans, which, which is what Tony Blair did. Tony Blair, when he would do the, oh, come on, type of thing in Parliament or on Jeremy Paxman, that neutralized opposition more than an actual English-language word could be. He destroyed an entire country uh, by making a, a noise that isn't even an articulation. Now, that's evil genius. Uh, so Tony Blair's um, oh shucks and Boris Johnson's terrible haircut have have brainwashed an entire nation. You don't even need goose stepping to get it done. It's quite scary, but also quite brilliant.
0: I think um, it's I'm not sure it's it's massively intelligent as much as it's just common sense. And we're, we're sort of run by idiot politicians um, who don't connect the dots together. But for example, Labor were dragging their heel, you know, and much of the Conservative Party were dragging their heels in so much over Brexit Um, and if they had a scrap of common sense they would have realized from the start that you don't need to you don't need to stop Brexit you can just you can you can you can you can mangle it towards your own ideals so they could have instead of trying to stop it altogether um, they could have tried to go for a Norway option or a very a very soft Brexit and it would have been a lot easier for them perhaps we would have been still in some sort of agreement with the EU. If they had had the uh, the sense to do that. Um. And, well, uh, it just uh,
1: goes to show you that being in the in, in the in the private sector gives you more intelligence. Boris <laughs> was a propagandist for The Spectator, and Keir Starmer's a propagandist for the the the, the uh, CPS. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn was a propagandist for, you know, uh, Islington Council, the Venezuelan government, the Iranian government, and all the rest of it. Well, Boris, he honed his propaganda skills and made a lot of money in the process. I'm not for a moment suggesting that people should make their living through ill-begotten gains, like working for The Spectator, but it just goes to show. It just goes to show you that there's very as as little imagination as there is in the fake news media. There's even less imagination in people who grew up in the private sector because they're oh so earnest, which is why they also have no sense of humor. They wouldn't know the difference between satire and ex and extremism. To bring that word back, if it, if it hit them in the head, they're really quite thick. But they have power, and that's why it's scary.
0: Mm. But this is the thing is that if, if only the left had realised from the beginning or the Remainers had realised from the beginning that they didn't need to oppose Brexit altogether. They could just m- mould it uh, into their own image. And that's what the Tories have done and have had the sense to do. They've changed, turned Brexit, which was originally a vote for sort of, of it was obviously a vote for less immigration and national sovereignty. They've moulded this into this sort of global Britain concept which is one for somehow that includes sort of mass immigration from uh, from uh, the rest of the world instead from Hong Kong um, and sort of uh, and uh, and then um, you know huge uh, government control in terms of uh, uh, the coronavirus pandemic they've sort of they've sort of um they've uh, they've they've twisted this concept into their own sort of Tory version and um, and if if only the left had the sense to do that then they perhaps wouldn't have been so opposed to brexit from the beginning you can just uh, i guess we all knew this would happen that, that brexit would be sort of um would be uh, would be manipulated by the the, the ruling uh, the liberal uh, the ruling class in this way It um, it's just it doesn't make it very it doesn't make it so easy when it actually happens and i've also heard a theory i heard a theory from my friend recently um who uh his theory is that this global britain stuff this sort of sort of the um the 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 extreme pandering to the left the extreme sort of um you know like the the carrie simmons stuff the diversity built britain coins the, uh, the black lives matter commissions or whatever the what the tory party is doing now um and you know the the mass immigration from hong kong um etc um what the Tory party is doing now is sort of it's trying to convince the sort of uh the the sort of globalist sort of powers of the world um that actually Britain is still on side we're still part of this sort of global framework um even though we've had Brexit it's trying to like suckle up to them basically with these sort of great sort of liberal um uh, projects um and so the implicate but it, it, I'm not sure it will it will. It will. My friend wasn't sure that it'll. It'll, uh, it'll work. Like we're we're out of the fold by this point, and and the the, the rest of the world seems very the, the sort of American international order seems very frosty towards us um, at the moment, um, and you see this in sort of uh, uh, the it's it's clear at the moment that there's some sort of international effort to sort of uh, provoke the troubles in Northern Ireland again. Um, the Joe oh Biden, look at Biden, Biden has yeah. said
1: quite openly where his loyalties lie though. Exactly,
0: so that, just, that sort of implies that there is sort of an international hostility to Britain uh, led by uh, certain factions in America because we defied the sort of international order with Brexit um, and that, that, so perhaps this global Britain stuff is sort of the Tories' way of saying um, you know, we, we're trying to persuade the world that we're still on the side of this sort of American liberal order um, but it remains, it doesn't look like it's working. And so it's sort of, I sort of found that affirming um, in the sense that maybe this will, this will slow down at some point and the rulers of Britain will realise that we're, you know, we're locked out of this American international system, we, we are, we're a pariah, um, and we've just got to accept it, there's no point suckling up. So that's what I hope. Um, uh, that you know, we'll t- we'll tone down this global Britain stuff, this like Carrie Simmons, wind turbines shit, <laughs> um, at some point. Um, so that, that, I just, I just, I hope I explain myself well. That's uh, that, that. No, no, it all yeah. makes
1: sense. It's, 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 a, it's a moment of optimism. I don't necessarily share it. I think one thing that was interesting is what Godfrey Bloom, a former UKIP man, before he became too honest for Mr Farage to handle, he said that uh, someone who admires the old Hong Kong uh, that uh, the great Scotsman John Cowperthwaite uh, created on, on, a, on a free market model that Britain once had, and this was done, you talk about the two nations, you don't need to go back to Disraeli, you can just contrast the Wilson years in England with what uh, Calperthwaite was doing in Hong Kong, uh, two different versions of an English economic and legal system. One became richer and one became poorer. And so Godfrey has said, and I I think he's right, that a lot of these people from Hong Kong have no interest in coming here. Um, When you look at the kinds of people that are coming in at Dover, it's from the countries that at least from an economic sense are worse. So, I mean, when we talk about realism, a lot of these great people from Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, a lot of these countries, Japan, they don't necessarily want to be walking the streets of London getting knifed every five minutes. Things are a bit better where they are, not in every case, but but in some, in a lot of cases. Um, I think that the funny thing is with, with Boris, He's prostrating himself to this whole Biden thing. But much like Obama, Biden, when he does pay attention to Britain, it's through this prism of sort of pent-up Dublin-style resentment. Uh, But most of the time, he's not paying attention uh, to Britain at all. Uh, Biden, the people that surround Biden... uh, most of them don't even have any spiritual connection to European culture of, of any kind. Um, most of them associate with what the sociologists call the global south. I mean, the the big thing, uh, all you need to do to realize it is, is how many Palestinians, supporters are now in the Democrat Party, which even 15, maybe even 10 years ago, wasn't the case. America had its allies, which meant NATO, the European Union, Israel, Taiwan, a few others that I'm probably forgetting, Australia, obviously. Uh, But this was always the, the reason that America was able to be coaxed out of the splendid isolation that Robert Taft Uh, Warned them not to abandon in the late 1940s was because they said, oh, it's all okay. We're doing this for people that have similar cultures. Okay, there's Britain, which is in NATO. There's NATO itself, which is about saying that commies should be out of Europe. We can all agree with that. Taiwan, the plucky anti-communist country. Israel, the Judeo-Christian cultural connection that American politicians used to talk a lot about. But now that the Democrat Party is at least at the upper echelon uh, supported by people who don't have this psychological connection to both real and imagined transatlantic ideas, Britain is sort of forgotten, Israel is forgotten, Taiwan is forgotten. Um don't get me wrong, I am a splendid isolationist in 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 the Lord Salisbury sense of the word. I keep keep to your own and if other countries want a war, uh you can offer to to draft a peace treaty for them if the check clears in the post. Uh so that's my point of view with that. Um but since it's very unpopular on both the left and right, it's sociologically interesting to see. So there are really two Americas right now. There always have been ever since the 1860s, but but prosperity has a way of making people forget such things. I mean, if you were to drop, you know, If if you were to have a Marshall plan uh, for Ulster, and if you were to do it in the 1970s, there would have been no fighting. Yes, people would have still got drunk at pubs and talked about how they hate this side or that side. Uh, But one of the reasons the troubles in Ulster were so bad is because Britain was too poor to bribe either side. And in the 90s, of course, and early 2000s, the bribery was done through the form of a military surrender, which is not only humiliating but wrong um so now that america's no longer it's it's fading away from prosperity you're seeing these two different sides of america um and you can really i mean trump's tweets which are now back in the form of his own website they make this divide very clear he's always praising the queen he's always saying that brexit not always but um he's he he said something very nice um, when the Duke of Edinburgh died he said something else recently and so he's essentially trying to associate his America with things like Magna Carta with things like European culture with things uh, like Christianity and what in America they tend to call Judeo-Christian values because of the First Amendment and, and the rest of it and then you have this other America which is essentially saying forget the Federal Reserve and all of this inflation and the fact that you won't be able to start your own business in the country that used to be famous for it but we're going to tear down these statues and we're going to pay a lot of money to do it um you know maybe someone from trump's america ought to say i can tear that statue down for half the price that would be the true american spirit but no there really are two americas and i don't think i I think that unless america's prosperity returns in the way that it did after the second world war I, i just don't see the two sides coming together
0: I think it's is a strange uh, international situation we're in, in that American power is, does seem to be receding. Um, and I think it's, it'll, it'll be America's Suez moment uh, when China uh, invades Taiwan, which um, seems to be, you know, any moment now really. Um, America, Joe Biden will be forced into a situation. Um, either he uh, intervenes to try and defend Taiwan and probably fails miserably or uh, he, um, or he just he just lets lets happen and doesn't get involved, and maybe makes a, 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 denounces China, but ultimately does nothing. And I think the latter is more likely because I think Biden supporters voted for Biden because they didn't want to think about politics anymore. Um, these, the, 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 you know, you, after Biden was elected, you saw these sort of these boomer liberals sort of saying, "Well, thank goodness, um, we don't have to think about politics anymore. We can just go back to our, our comfy." Uh, Middle class life for um, now. Until they yeah, lose it yeah. And I th- so I don't think I don't think it's likely that Biden will actually want to bring America into a war with China. He'll use China, just like he's used, um, just like he's used, uh, uh, you know, just like American liberals have used Putin and the threat, the the imaginary threat of Russia as sort of a big bad wolf through which to unite their divided country. They'll probably try and use Xi Jinping in a similar way, but I don't think America has. American liberals have the energy to fight such a war, um, and I think it will be a great em- embarrassment for America. Um, I, I, I think that will be their Suez moment. Um, and there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of debate about China on on, this, on the sort of online right. Like, I think the, there are different sides to China. I think perhaps it's a mistake to view it as sort of this, you know, sort of brave new superpower um like you see you see these videos on the internet of like this amazing chinese technology um where it's it's, it's stuff that was technology that was stopped like rope like these little robot things you know and, and then these boomers are saying wow look how advanced china is they're going to overtake us and become a new a new the new global power when really it's, it's technology that's been <laughs> that's been stolen from the west and it's stuff that we can you know came up with in the 80s um but it's um, so I don't think I don't think Maybe China, China
1: just... should invest in the English education system. They'll be <laughs> fucked. Otherwise,
0: <laughs> I think, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's the Chinese Chinese Asian education system. The Asia is a very good conformist. The Asian countries are very conformist and authoritarian. Um, and that's really to their detriment. I mean, uh, and I, I don't trust these Tories who um you say we should be have more like a more Chinese education system. That seems like uh, Asian education systems are only good for creating good little workers, obedient little workers who come out of school with sort of psychological uh, scarring and sort of weird perverted sex fetishes. You know, that's all that that's all authoritarian education gets you. Um, but the, uh, in terms of China, it's a very unimaginative country and always has been, um, because it's very authoritarian. Um, So much of its technology is literally just stolen from the West um, and regurgitated. Um, So I don't think I don't think it's a very um, impressive country, Um, but it is. It's certainly on the rise. Um, It'll probably conquer Taiwan, Um, and so I'm not sure we'll have a. I'm not sure we'll have a sort of a Chinese world in the same way we've had an American world, Um, because I I don't think that's ever been the case with historical chinese imperialism in the past china was just a kind of like economic center and it's always been interested in sort of selling using its massive workforce and using its 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 huge riches to just sell its stuff to the rest of the world china's never been invaded interested in sort of like world domination we've never had sort of a world dominating chinese empire in history before it's always just been there this big sort of Colossal decadent power selling its stuff, selling its silk to Europe and its China and its pottery to Europe. I think that's probably what we'll have again. I think with the, t- the decline of the American empire, uh, we'll see a return to sort of um competing regional powers for a bit until a new global empire uh, takes charge, if, if that happens uh, again anytime soon, or if America, or if America. Uh, resuscitates or well, the western countries uh, resuscitate themselves which isn't totally unlikely it's happened before in history that great nations have gone into periods of decline it's happened in the west before uh, and uh, and then and then re- re- resurged back to power so i wouldn't be totally sort of despairing in that regard um but it is it is it, interesting to watch uh, china um and uh how how that situation develops um
1: no they're absolutely they're absolutely they're interested in commerce taiwan is an issue of pride more than more than commerce mm. uh, but yeah they don't need the sort of a, a america america sold its image as much as anything else and china doesn't doesn't seem to be too interesting. They try at times, but they, they don't particularly succeed. I mean, again, America sort of like the Boris Johnson of empires in the sense of, um, they, they, they were so good at propaganda that they convinced people that they needed to invade Iraq just to have Coca-Cola. I've never invaded Iraq and I have Coca-Cola, uh, but that's how good, I'm obviously being simplistic, but American propaganda is one of the best that we've ever had because it was able to to coax people into doing exactly what it wanted. And in most cases, it didn't have to fire a shot. Yeah, I think- when, when Russia, as the Soviet Union, was sort of inching into Africa, parts of Asia, uh, parts of uh, Latin America, they didn't have that propaganda. They needed to hand over the goods. They needed they, right. Here's some Kalashnikovs. Here's some subsidized oil. Here's some. Uh, uh, here's some. Uh, some wood. Some rubber. Uh, they. They had to do it the old fashioned way by giving these countries stuff uh, so that some communist dictator in Angola would be propped up by them. Where America, yeah, they did some of that, particularly in Latin America. But in much of the rest of the world, it was all through the power of of economically induced persuasion where and it's quite brilliant. You give us the money where the Soviet Union, uh, will give you the Kalashnikov. So, I mean, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, uh, I think it was Gore Vidal who said that the only original art form America had, uh, was, was marketing, which is a bit unfair to the African Americans who have created original art form where, uh, the European Americans obviously have just continued and in some cases debased European art forms, but marketing, you've got to tip your hat to that.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, you could almost view globalization like it's touted as this sort of um, this wholly new event in, America, in human history, and you you could just say that that's just um, that's a PR term for uh, American imperialism because um, America is a country that obviously it was founded on an anti-imperial basis, so it's very awkward for them to have an but empire. They love the
1: same.
0: Uh, so it, yeah, so 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 unlike the British Empire, which was sort of open about sort of you could almost call the British Empire a form of globalization. You know, we had the Pax Britannica. Um, we had free trade throughout the world. This is the same thing has happened with the American Empire. Really, it's just they don't formally they don't formally conquer countries. They they uh, they they get the CIA to to march in and assassinate the leader and uh, uh, prop up a, uh, a you know a tin pot dictator. Um, but yeah, so it's it's America is a uh, very um, nifty in that regard, um, and it's uh, the, the end of the, the decline of globalization is sort of. The decline of American power, um, but I, I I have a sort of faith in the West um, and Western sort of ingenuity, um, and I the worst case scenario is that our countries sort of kind of become like Brazil, very sort of culturally divided, um, sort of bitterly sectarian. Um, um, but I I have a kind of faith on the on the flip side of the coin, um, we may may be able to see a resurgence. Um, and China, the the, the, the sort of the, the the power of China will be sort of a, 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 a just a, a fleeting sort of um, fleeting moment of history when uh, the the Western powers hadn't got their shit together for a few decades, but then we got our shit together and we uh, we we managed to restore our our greatness. Um,
1: Well, there's there's two things with China that are going to be... China faces two major decisions in terms of its internal policies over the next... let's say 20 years, maybe longer. But history seems to be moving fast. So let's say 20. The first is that they have to wake up to the reality that there are now many countries capable of mass producing goods at the same level that China had been doing uh, for for lower wages. And then the second issue is, what does China do about its currency? Does it keep on printing this worthless currency at artificially low rates just so that, um, that Americans are unaware of their own poverty because they can afford cheap stuff from China? Or do they say, look, now that we can't compete in terms of their wages, do we actually go on the gold standard and try to become innovative, try to become more self-sufficient as opposed to relying so much on exports to build wealth. And at the same time in doing so, we'll lose our best customer in in the West, America in particular. So these are the two big questions that China's going to have to face. Right now, they're in a game of sort of codependency with the US. It's a bit like a bad marriage. Uh, America has a worthless currency and China has to make this even more worthless so that they can continue to sell the stuff. But when higher wages in China mean that even with a depressed currency, an artificially depressed currency, they can't do it, what do they do next? Do they get their act together and go on gold like a grown up nation would do? Or do, they, um, or do they keep this perpetual cycle of anything you can inflate, I can inflate better? I don't actually know, but China is buying a lot of gold and they're not telling people about it. So maybe, maybe that's a sign of what's to come.
0: I think um, I'll end the podcast in a second, but as sort of a final sort of question, uh, would you say your... Um, uh, optimistic or sort of pessimistic about the future and the future of politics and the future of your own sort of political uh, ideology?
1: I mean, for I'm staring out at the world from a fish tank perspective. Everything looks blurred. Everything looks bigger than it actually is. Everything, the monsters on the other side look much more grotesque than they probably actually are. So at the moment, I'm feeling pessimistic. But at the end of the day, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction that is ultimately the physics of politics no matter how people try to over intellectualize it so i do think things will bounce back i do think that freedom has to be the only reaction to what's going on because when when you have this authoritarianism the antithesis is, is freedom, is liberty, smaller government. The only thing where I can't really give an honest answer is I don't know when, because I'm frankly still a bit shocked that so many people think that this is normal. Uh, in, in any sense. And we're not talking about abstract things like what inflation will do in two years. We're not talking about employment. We're talking about people who already had fairly normal and stable lives. And they actually think that having to put on a muzzle just to get in a black cab is is somehow something that is consistent with, with normality. So it's, it's a matter of when, and um, I can't say when. So in short answer pessimistic now i'll become optimistic as soon as i can see the tide turning
0: okay um well i've had that was i think that was a good conversation um thank yeah, you for it, yeah you. thanks for appearing and if um, anyone wants to uh, listen to adam gary and his uh, sort of uh, prog rock uh, radio show just visit uh, scotland 69 a.m um, and see everyone at home next time